0: Welcome back to political agenda after a very long break political agenda is a podcast series by new narrative a platform for southeast asian journalism research art and community building this time we're doing things a little bit differently we're tying our podcast recordings to democracy classrooms and so these democracy classrooms are sessions that i facilitate at least once a month uh, discussing a particular issue of concern to singaporeans and so this month we talked about youth activism at our democracy classroom and so we're going to talk about that for the podcast as well so people who didn't make it to the democracy classroom can catch up and we can also hear more from the guests that we have. And so my name is Kirsten Hahn. I'm the editor-in-chief of New Narrative and I'm going to leave it to our guests to introduce themselves and what they do.
1: Hi, my name is um, Christian. Um, I'm part of SG Climate Rally, a a group of individuals who are looking to um, get Singaporeans to understand that the climate crisis is one that requires bold, institutional action to combat it.
2: Uh, Hi, I am Mandy. I am the Programs and Events Coordinator of Sayoni, and um, Sayoni is a LGBTQ women's group that advocates for LGBT rights. Uh, and also, um, on the side, I uh, volunteer for youth LGBT organizations like Young Out Here and a regional one called Youth Voices Count.
3: Okay, Hi, I'm Rocky. I'm part of the Kasia Resettlement Team. I do research and advocacy for the team. And the Kasia Resettlement Team is uh, a group which we volunteers and um, who looks at uh, resettlement issues. Uh, we work with a group of residents who have been forcibly resettled by the government from Dakota Crescent to Kasia. And increasingly, we also address issues about access to social welfare and social services. Yeah. Okay.
0: And so we talked about youth activism in the last democracy classroom because the democracy classroom before that, it was brought up as a topic that people would like to discuss because they felt like there was more kind of publicity and also discussion around the world now about how young people are coming forward to stand up for causes that they believe in. There was You know, a lot of attention being paid to Greta Thunberg about the climate rallies all over the world. Um, A lot of talk about also in Singapore, the cancellation of a Yale NUS program about dissent and resistance, which sparked off a lot of discussion about dissent, resistance and activism, and whether we should be teaching that to young Singaporeans. And then also people who were at the democracy classrooms had brought up how impressed they were by the SG climate rally and how it was done. And how a lot of young people had come forward to do that. And so I think just to start off first, if we could go around the table, how did you even get started doing this? So maybe, Chris, you can start.
1: Particularly with SG Climate Rally, um, I think the climate crisis has become increasingly important to me um, after, I guess, my time in, in, in university and recognizing how I think everything's interconnected and we have like these bigger structural forces at play that really, I think, affect. Um, how inequity arises. And I think to me, the climate crisis is also one of, of, of inequity. You know, the people who, um, who contribute the least to, to climate change will be affected the most, which I think to me fundamentally is an issue of social justice. And that's something I'm very passionate about. Um, so to me, uh, working on SG Climate Rally and, and, and starting it was really just kind of like a, a very easy next step for me uh, right after graduation.
0: How did people start it? Did just a group of friends come together? Or?
1: Yeah, so um, actually it was kind of like the brainchild of, of one individual um, also uh, who's still in university, Kamal. so shout out to Komal. Um, she, I think, was very um, passionate about um, trying to, to um, construct some sort of physical rally uh, in Singapore. Um, we've never had something like that um, for climate action. Um, we had something... Uh, on, on online uh, a few months ago, but it's not necessarily the same as 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 assembling, as as getting people together to 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 um to express solidarity. Um, and she thought that was important to kind of get the message across, to also um get more Singaporeans to start thinking more seriously about the climate crisis. Um, so she reached out to um, a few people that she knew and really just like other people you know texted like their friends their colleagues people they knew that were interested and then we kind of just like got together so like 15 of us kind of got together and decided okay let's let's plan this rally um let's try and get like permits for hunglin park and let's see where it goes
2: how did you get started mandy uh i think my journey into activism is quite a personal one like um so uh growing up queer in singapore i mean growing up uh Growing up as a teenager in general is like hard enough, so coming to terms with your sexual identity and knowing that you have to live with a stigmatized identity with pretty much the rest of your life is something that is quite hard to handle as a teenager. So I joined a queer youth support group, uh, Young Out Here, uh, and it, I'm not exaggerating when I say it quite literally saved my life. And it was then that I realized the importance of the LGBT community and how... How much I wanted to contribute back to the community that changed my life, so I think I I started volunteering for them and got and getting into LGBT activism. I think also with the idealistic hope that future generations won't have, have to go through the same things that I went through, and uh, so after you know um, studying in university and uh, doing gender studies and all of that, I I realized that I have. Uh, I have a privilege that uh, a lot of other people in Singapore, queer people in Singapore do not have, and I think being in activism will allow me to give voice to people who do not share the same privileges, like being openly queer, coming from a Chinese upper middle class family, which means I don't have to think that much about you know feeding my parents in the future. So I think it uh, it starts from it came from me wanting to use my privileges for good.
3: Yeah, I guess myself, myself, um, I got involved in sort of issues surrounding the resettlement and, and uh, process, like about three three years ago. I was actually attending um, one of drama boxes uh, events that they did at the place. So it's a site specific theatre program, and that kind of like sparked my own interest, like or thoughts about like um, what exactly is you know happening everywhere in terms of resettlement and. What does it mean for our own history and our own identity, um, as a nation? And so I got involved in some of like the, the more conservation heritage oriented aspects of the, code, the resettlement process in the first place. But gradually over time, like that evolved um, into a I won't say larger, but uh, I guess a more pressing concern about what happened to the people who were resettled, how they're experiencing the relocation, how were they, you know, what kind of services do they access? And bearing in mind that these are Rental housing flats, and oftentimes, like, um, and these are uh, individuals or families who are largely low income, um, largely elderly as well, and many elderly who live alone. And that just kind of you know pushed me to think about what we can do for the community, um, uh, there. And over time, so that involved in, involved into interest and involved into uh, more work around social welfare and understanding. Uh, what what the gaps or what of the um, structural barriers in terms of access to services and and access to help, uh or, or the, the social welfare that these people should should in fact be receiving.
0: Yeah, yeah I I guess I can kind of chip in mine also. Uh, although I increasingly am reminded I'm not that young <laughs> activist. I was talking to someone the other day who had started in civil society about the same time as me and she was like, hey, we we very anti now. And and so, but I started in 2010 uh, by accident um, volunteering with the online citizen because I was a bit bored. Uh, and then f- through there, got to know about the death penalty and got to know a, a families of death row inmates. And that's how I started. First in uh, anti-death penalty activism and then moving into other issues, the more and more I realized that all these issues were interconnected. Okay, and so I think just before we even begin, right, like, it is already considered quite, like, special that as a group of young Singaporeans we are even involved in activism, because, you know, what do you think, how do you think activism is seen in Singapore today?
1: I mean, I think, um, and this was also a consideration uh, when we were planning SG Climate Rally, um, was how do we, I guess, get people to understand that I think advocacy or, or, or having a dialogue with, with institutions is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, to your your question directly, yeah, I think activism still definitely has quite a bad rap in Singapore. I think it's still quite taboo. Um, you know, I think it's still socially stigmatized. People don't necessarily understand it as something that is, is I think, Quite integral to to a democracy and to having conversations with your state, the people who are supposed to provide for their citizens, um, and so yeah, that was a big consideration for SG Climate Rally. How do we kind of make it palatable? How do we make how do we stop people getting to think about engaging in dialogue as something that's very valuable and important?
2: Yeah, I completely agree as well. And I think there's this. Um, perhaps social construction and the way that people view activists as someone who is like unappreciative of the comforts that Singapore brings to you and that you are not patriotic and you are, you're basically, yeah, you're basically very unappreciative. And I think even sometimes within the LGBTQ community, activism is also seen as something that is pushing too hard, you know, like we're rocking the boat too much. Uh, if you're not happy with Singapore, you should just migrate somewhere else.
3: For sure, I agree with it. I think yeah, the addition to that also like a sense in which I think sometimes activism is associated with like a cynicism um towards whatever that has been provided for you in you know in the comforts of Singapore. Yeah.
0: So in that case, did, did anyone like try to dissuade you from doing what you do or like do you constantly get people asking you like why are you doing this? What are you thinking?
1: Um yeah, I know I think I think f- for, for me or at least for like SG Climate Rally also, I think it's it's been almost like to some extent, at least with the people around me, it's been the other way they're like, Oh yeah, very good now. You yeah, you know, the, the youth of today really like really, really, really doing all the work. But it's also like I think something that like we also want to try and 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 underscore is that like thank you, but also like, you know, like I think this is not just like our work. This is just the work that like everyone else has to do. So it's, it's more like trying to remind people who like encourage us to do it that you know, they also have to do it. Um, they also have to kinda start getting engaged in like these dialogues, these conversations.
2: I think people who have tried to persuade uh, dissuade me to some level, but perhaps it's like uh, not so overt. Like for instance, um I think when my when I told my parents about how uh, I'm doing I'm going to be doing uh, human rights activism full time, uh, my dad had a really like he was really scared. And he had this reaction that he said like, oh, he went to talk to his lawyer friends and his lawyer friends told him that if you start working in human rights, the government is going to start tracking you and like look into your family background. So I think, I, I don't think, I, I don't blame him for his uh, view because I think this is a view that is held in quite a huge majority of society. There's this fear of uh, repercussions when you say something that goes against uh, what is typically held as the norm. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think I have that. I mean, I find that the most difficult, like it's more difficult than like strangers coming up to you, right? And going, you shouldn't do this because it's it's much harder when it's family or when it's close friends, people who, are, who you're close to because it's much harder to argue against that because like I can tell a stranger that, no, no, this is important work and I have to do it. But it's harder to tell like a parent or a grandparent who... Who is saying it not to try to shut you down, but because they are genuinely very scared. Yeah. They are like, you know, I worry for you, like you should feel for like a mother who's just worried about her kid. And it's like, what do you say to that, really? Like, like how do you respond to that? And I find that actually more difficult than than others because it's it's clearly it is a form of policing, but it's it's not with bad intentions, right? So how do you how do you even respond to people who do that out of love, really?
2: I think it pretty much comes from the place of care. And it's not, I think for me, how I've uh, spoken up to it, uh, about it with my parents is that I try to remind them about how important my work is. And um, I think slowly with uh, the changes that's happening in Singapore, they are slowly starting to see as well, like why my work is important.
0: Yeah, I think... That actually is related to something that came up a lot when we were talking at the democracy classroom. A lot of people brought up this idea of fear, of repercussions, of people, whether people are not starting out in activism at all, or even if they do, there's difficulty standing in solidarity with each other because of fear. And I think that was one very big thing that came out of the democracy classroom. And Mandy and Chris were both there. So like, what, what came out of your groups when people were talking about that?
1: For sure, I think the fear is, is incredibly real. Um, and I think also, um, yeah, I think that leads to a lot of like, like I think what you've alluded to is like, you know, self-censorship, right? Like before even trying to like start, you already like don't even like consider or you just like back out. Um, and that was also something that we we, we discussed, discussed in our group and how that also I think influences, influences how you um, plan things or even like how you negotiate what your activism looks like um, because you there is always this possibility that something may happen to you something may happen to like the people that you you love and that you care for um so it, it really shapes i think how yeah what activism looks like or how you perform activism or advocacy which i think something else yeah very important for us and actually climate rally you know like planning the planning the rally what we could do what we could not do what we thought we could do but also like weren't very sure of um yeah so it is this incredible kind of like it's it's almost like a shot in the dark sometimes you know you just kind of do it and you I don't know see what happens
0: were there uh, were there like any particular instances that stick in your mind of uh what it is that you thought you could do or couldn't do or weren't even sure <laughs>
1: um yeah i think i think for sure, i think um, the the last segment of the the climate rally was this thing called a die in which is um like a uh, which is something that i think a lot of activists around the world do um, it's kind of like this mass demonstration where you perform kind of death and you and you reflect on 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 i guess lives lost on the lives that will be lost uh, given the cause and, and this cause being climate the climate crisis um and we were not sure i guess whether or not like something of that scale and kind of like just even the the um, the aesthetic of it or even just kind of like people visualizing it and and whether or not that will translate into um yeah this because this very like violent um image uh, and whether or not that was too strong, whether or not we will, I mean, number one, whether or not people um, there would would be against it, but also, I guess, in terms of like, yeah, bigger powers, whether or not there'll be like repercussions when this image comes out of like, you know, like hundreds of people just kind of like laying on the ground. Um, yeah.
0: And, and in any case, this was already being held at Honglim Park, right? yeah. which is the only place in Singapore where you can do this <laughs> yeah. without a permit. But was there even confusion, like trying to get a registration? to use the power?
1: yeah yeah for sure i mean i think it was it was quite a lot i mean in terms of just kind of like yeah legislative confusion but also just like whether or not we would even um get the permit um i think in terms of like wording how we would you know like the event description and sending that in very careful to use very specific words because we were scared some words would like i guess um alert people to this being um incredibly like aggressive and then they would like you know um um um, reject our request so yeah all very careful kind of like language usage what we could say what we like maybe decided not to say um yeah
0: yeah i think the probably like the og people who are really good at this would be the pink dot team right mm-hmm. like they're just really they've become really good at figuring out how to navigate honglin park and mm-hmm. over the years the the rules have got tougher and i know from speaking to them that they said when they first began in 2009 because activism was so kind of demonized and seen Mm. as a frightening thing. Like, a lot of effort in 2009 was expended to assure people that it was not a protest, that it was, you know, not confrontational, you know, just bring your friends, please straight people, come to our LGBT (laughs) rally. And they actually talked a lot about how, like, especially in those early years, a lot of effort was put into reaching out to straight people, even though it was an LGBT cause. Because, like, for example, one fear in that first year was that LGBT Singaporeans were afraid that if they attended, it would be de facto outing themselves because would there be an assumption that everybody who goes to Dot is gay, for example? Mm. And so they had to be like, please, straight people come and then tell their gay friends. No, no, people won't assume you're gay. I see, so many straight people came. Um, and so that that is, I think, a very interesting line that groups have to walk, civil society groups in Singapore have to walk. But is that also does that become problematic in a way? Because I know like Pink Dot has also been accused of playing respectability politics, right? And then there's been discussion. I think Rocky, you wrote on Facebook recently about distinctions between good activists and bad activists and what that means. And so do you want to talk about that a little bit? What you meant when you were referring to discussions of what is good activism and what is bad activism in Singapore?
3: I guess one way to frame that picture is to think about you know, the state sometimes, or sometimes like it's language in a way that like good activists are activists who are more than willing to, you know, collaborate with the state, for example, or who are not disruptive or subversive of the status quo in Singapore. And, you know, bad activists are the people who are labeled as disloyal charlatans uh, and whatever else by, you know, by the government. And in some ways, it's worrying because it's a stri- it is, is a strategy used to divide, um, or to cleave kind of like civil society in two, and to label certain actions and certain ways of operating as civil society or as activists as normal, and saying that others aren't and others are not acceptable. Um, so, oftentimes like people who engage with strategies of like civil disobedience, um, breaking the law are seen as bad activists, um. And, and, you know, it's like, oh, it's Singapore, like, you know, the rule of law, there's the rule of law, and and, and, and you know, everyone should follow the law, even if you're a civil society activists, And that kind of prevents us from recognising that, in fact, some of the laws itself are fundamentally unjust.
0: But I think that hasn't got very far, like, this civil disobedience <laughs> in Singapore. I think even <laughs> a lot of civil society groups feel like it's not worth their while. Like, I've, I think among older activists, they they might not like the idea. I think among younger activists, there's more openness to the idea, but it's just seen as not worth their while in Singapore because they're like, you know, you're going to get arrested and no one's even going to be like standing with you. In fact, it might be seen as like counterproductive for your cause to get arrested because then you're like, oh, then people will smear us as being rebel rousers and not worth taking seriously. And so I think that that is um, like a conversation that we haven't actually had enough. But then at the same time, that also means like it would be really limiting the amount of tactics and strategies that we have is really limiting. And then if it veers into respectability and legitimacy, then then the issue that you brought up, Mandy, about privilege comes up. Because it means only people who speak well and speak in a certain mm. way get taken more seriously. And, and so how does that affect it, your work or what have you observed
2: I think from what I've observed, uh, in terms of, because, uh, so like what you said about how, you know, um, having to use, I, I completely agree with you that certain people, when they view civil disobedience as something that shouldn't, is counterproductive to the movement. But I think personally, I am of the view that um, civil society in general should have a diversity of tactics because that strengthens our, our movement. Uh, but in terms of LGBT uh, advocacy, I think, in from what I've seen also, sometimes there's this aversion to talk about human rights because uh, human rights is seen as something that is, you know, Western, as a foreign import. It's not something that is, uh, not something that is it's our culture values. But what I personally believe is that human rights is a framework to look at. Uh, uh, oppression and to look at people uh, marginalisation and how people are disadvantaged in different ways. So, if you imply, uh, apply a human rights framework, you kind of you can see how people are left out of the conversation when it comes to respectability politics. For instance, when you know. Sometimes there's uh, this discourse in LGBT activism that, you know, we are also contributing to the society. We uh, we have good jobs, we are, you know, lawyers, engineers, we have all this sort of, like, upper-middle-class jobs. And therefore, we are contributing back to society and we deserve to, you know, have those equal rights. But I feel like when you use this sort of respectability politics, you also leave behind a lot of people who... Like you said, a are not English speaking. B they uh, come from working class um, uh, jobs, and also, I I do think that within um, LGBTQ communities as well, there is a huge aversion to talk to talking about racial discrimination within the community, and uh, that those are things that are, have to be worked on. But at the same time, I'm also think I'm quite hopeful in the sense that I'm seeing like our generation being a lot more. Um, they're not being that averse to talking about such uncomfortable topics. And also I'm seeing uh, racial minority groups forming their own sort of like alliances of like queer racial minority groups forming their own alliances and uh, communities as well. And so
0: Rocky, so can you talk a bit about who you work with and at, at Dakota Cassia and whether how much chance do they have to like speak for themselves and be part of the conversation?
3: Hmm. I think... Um... So we work with um, rental housing tenants. Um, these are tenants who, well, at least in the Dakota estate because the Quartate estate had been around since 1958. Um, these are residents who have been living there for 30, 40 years. So many of them are elderly um, living alone. But we also have a small proportion which are families with maybe three to four kids, for example. Um, and oftentimes when we speak with them or you know when we did, uh, interviews with them for, for our sort of early documentation project and for the book project that we worked on um, often times the narrative that came across from them is that you know um, we can't really, uh, yeah, we are just normal people, we don't know how to voice out our concerns um, and there was a lot of confusion about that whole process of resettlement um, and, and you know they weren't sure who to go to to voice out their concerns or to make their demands clear um, and sort of like they were caught within this huge bureaucratic process of you know having to ballot for a new flat um, especially some of the LD residents were sort of very uncomfortable living in a high-rise um, uh, in a new high-rise building like um, and they were like oh I want flats on the lower on near near to the ground floor because I'm not comfortable taking the lifts for example that's that's one the thing to us that but I don't know how to raise this issue up with um, HDB for example so at a, at a very early stage, there was a lot of what we encountered in terms of them saying, uh, I'm not sure how to voice out the issues that I'm facing. Um, so I think that was why we, we, when working with them, we, um, a lot of what we do focuses on um, just spending time with them and listening to what their needs are and trying to see whether there's an other avenue that we can do advocacy for uh, on their behalf. Okay.
0: But yeah, I think this question then of on their behalf because in, in a way mm-hmm. it's useful because you know like I find even with like death row inmates families and stuff right especially if they are not from Singapore and if they come from like rural Sabah or Sarawak so in, in that sense on their behalf is good because then me with my level of English can access mm-hmm. certain uh, you know um, opportunities and spaces that they can't but at the same time it's also problematic to always be doing things on other people's behalf right at what so how do we balance do doing things speaking for a group or speaking with a group or just basically amplifying their message or actually just creating space for them and that's something that I've I've kind of thought about a lot and struggled with a lot but how do we even do that so like for example the the climate rally right it's it's done by I, w- I suppose, still fairly middle-class Singaporeans. But then, you know, when you were talking about the issue and what drew you to it, inequality and equity was one of the issues. And so, how then do we try to get more diversity class-wise? I think we, t- we talk a lot in Singapore about diversity racially, but we don't talk about diversity in terms of class and economic backgrounds and, you know, just different you know age groups and things like that. How do we even do that?
1: Um, Something that at least with the SG Climate Rally team that we're trying to actively think about and also start to uh, be more conscious of is also just kind of like the language we use around informing people about the climate crisis um, because this is indeed something that affects and will, it is 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 affecting and will also greatly affect us um, and affect all of us, right? And then how do we, I guess, kind of how do we how do we convey that severity in a way that is accessible to like a lot of different people, um, and for sure um, also trying to then um, in trying to rally support also then trying to get these people also to to join um, to join to join the collective to also start um, um, getting them also to. Um, access spaces that maybe yeah i mean that that we because of the language we speak um may not be able to access right also i think with trying to um democratize the work of sg climate rally but also in getting different people of different backgrounds then that also creates spaces for these conversations to exist in other places where that, may, that we may not personally have access to um but yeah super tricky i guess in terms of even like conveying the message how do we get across these things that have i think that we are very used to, to 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 talking about in very specific ways with very specific vocabulary
3: yeah i i recognize that the tension that's kind of being pointed to um i guess i have a more pessimistic view even even amongst like my my colleagues in the team like i just think that you know, these are issues of class struggles, right? Like, like there are wider fundamentally dif- differences. Like class is not just about people being of different social positions, right? There's sometimes an exploitative relationship uh, between different classes, and especially especially so in, 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 in when we look at Singapore and we look at housing issues in Singapore, recognizing that the rental housing system is a residualized one. Um, 90% of Singaporeans are homeowners and oftentimes that comes at the cost of ignoring or of branding people who live in rental housing as lazy as you know people who are not managing that that their own finances well who are not working hard enough and that narrative props up 90% who are homeowners right in some ways so or at least that's what the government wants us to believe that we are homeowners because you know we have worked hard and give them things like that. So, so I think that's that's fundamentally frustrating, and that narrative is so entrenched that it's it's and it's so difficult to change. And that's something that I guess we we are struggling with. Um, how do we get that to change? But at the same time, um, how do we do that kind of sh- transformative, like structurally transformative work, while at the same time paying attention. To the immediate needs of the community when it comes to this person doesn't have access to social welfare today no one's feeding this person right for so so or no there's no one there to provide um, medical transport services to the hospital for a hospital appointment that one of our residents is having today right so i think that's that's always a kind of tension that you are kind of dealing you know um crt um has the balance of advocacy and structural work with that kind of community work that we do from a day to day. So I think it's, I think, so I guess, yeah, so I think sometimes we, we really kind of <laughs> struggle to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I think that's one of the things also, right, like, um, it's easier for, for example, for us as middle class people to be like, oh, let's talk about the systemic issue mm-hmm. and like, oh, the, the institutionalization of exploitation and then like, you meet somebody who is, you know, in a much more difficult position, like a migrant worker, or you know, when I meet domestic workers or you know, death row inmates' families, obviously, and and it's like, yes, yeah, so let's talk about how capital punishment is a systemic issue, and like migrant labor is like systemically exploitative, and they're like, great, okay, but how how about the fact that my boss is not paying me like right now, and and that that is very difficult because on the one hand we do have to address things at the root. But on the other hand, as you say, like it doesn't meet certain people's immediate kind of urgent needs. And I think a lot of civil society groups in Singapore have that problem between having to do advocacy and direct services. And that is then exacerbated by the fact that there's there's also differentiated treatment between whether you do advocacy or you do direct services, right? Like the government is happy to support direct services. You know, they are happy that people are running homeless shelters. They are happy that people are like bringing food to the elderly and, you know, handing out food rations. And this is all very encouraged and it's especially encouraged among young people, right? It's like, please go to some rental block and like paint the block and sweep the block and pick up the trash and bring food to people. And so we seem to have split between volunteerism and activism. But is that is a very artificial split, do you find, with the Kassia Resettlement team?
3: I think for us, like we are a very loose group in the sense that um, some people do see themselves as volunteers. Um, some people see themselves as activists. Some people see themselves as a combination of, of the two. Yeah, so like we don't... And I don't necessarily think one is you no know, better or more important than other, um, just that we kind of need to pay attention to, I guess, the the um, different dynamics of, of how we interact with each other, and, and you know, um, what are we uh, what are we working for on a day to day basis? So like, I mean, I guess there are there are differences within the group, so we are organized very loosely in that sense, but I think for sure. Um, Sometimes volunteerism is actually a good inroad into more activist work. Um, when you start as a volunteer, um, you you know, you're on the ground, especially with, with the work we do, you're on the ground. You spend time in the residence, you learn more about the challenges and the issues they're facing. And then that kind of motivates you to explore deeper um, about actually how some of these are linked to certain policies which are discriminatory. Or, or fundamentally unjust and then that, that pushes you to move into more kind of activist circles or activist approaches to the work you do. So I think especially for I guess the I mean even for myself or for the younger generation, like that's that's kind of how we 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 filter in towards activist work. And and that's and that's a process that, that takes some time. Yeah, I mean I guess for me I, I guess I started out as a volunteer, more or less. Um and then over time, you know, I just kind of I got i realized that actually there are some issues that we can't address without more fundamental structural changes in society and in the state
1: yeah. i think something that was brought up also in the in the democracy classroom the other day was kind of like this dichotomy, right within between um social work and activism and how at least in my group we were discussing how we have had experiences with some of our peers who really pride themselves in only exclusively doing social work. And they're like, "I'm not that activist type," you know. I I I really just do like social work, which is like I think for me it was personally very interesting that people have this dichotomy in their heads, um, and and that one is seen as more valuable or you know or just good as compared to the other. And it's so interesting that I think we also kind of like li- live now in this in this social cultural context where we see social work as something that is kind of like in a vacuum almost and people can very comfortably do that without actually seeing how it's maybe connected to like other things
2: i think i think um the you know the 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 dichotomy between volunteerism and activism in some sense also has in part due to the fact that like social services is also seen as something that's depoliticized as if it's something that is separate from you know um the research and advocacy work that is done that is, like, too too much. You know, you're doing all this research and you're doing all this um, advocacy work. You're publishing all these reports and papers. What what are you actually doing to to, to solve their immediate needs, right? But at the same time, I, I personally am of the view that research is, uh, and advocacy work is incredibly important because it feeds back into the social services and the outreach that you do. Um, I think also I sometimes struggle with... Uh, you know um cuz i my work mostly focuses on research and advocacy work and sometimes i personally also struggle with um you know i'm doing all this research and i'm, I'm doing all this uh you know stuff but what am I actually doing to to help people on the ground? Because I think the gratification you get also is a bit slow. It's like a very slow return investment kind of thing. Like if you provide social services, you can see the change that is immediately happening in society. But then when you're doing research and you're collecting data and then you're using this data to speak, you know, to work through, uh, you speak to you know policymakers. It's a it's a system that has very very slow returns and it's a extremely bureaucratic process and that can sometimes feel very um, it can sometimes be a bit disheartening yeah
3: yeah i feel like with what Mandy, Mandy is saying about how like social services here is fundamentally depoliticized i think we need to be reminded that you know social work and in, in other places other countries is often defined as including things like power analysis in, includes advocacy and activism on on behalf and with the people that you're working with Right, social work and, and other places often is not just about community development, it's also about community organizing, right? It's bring bring people together to make their own demands and I guess you're just so far away from that in, in Singapore.
0: <laughs> and how do you think that impacts society generally, right? So not only views about activism but views about social work and volunteer work and community work. How how what has that like how has that um, impacted us as a people in Singapore? That's
3: like a very big question. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me what what's important is that you know as when we are living in Singapore, like there's always a sense that our our, our agency is obstructed, right? Like there's a sense that we can't we can make demands of for better like for better governance for you know for for society to change. Mm-hmm for systems to transform and I see you know the way in which we treat you know the way in which we valorize volunteers and the way we valorize social service and social work in, in that certain inflection of oh, I'm just here to deliver services for clients as part of that issue about agency and, and a part of part of, um, part of the issue about how do we define what counts as your agency. so. Like, you know, we expect or, or the state asks us to expect people to find their agency in volunteerism. You know, this is what active citizenry means, right? Like delivering services, mm-hmm. helping the needy mm-hmm. and not getting people to say, okay, I'm part of this democratic society. I'm part of, uh, you know, I'm I'm part of a community, you know, that can make our own demands, that can ask for change, that can act on change, um, um or even create sort of, um social institutions and communities that are not beholden to the state mm. right i think that's 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 that kind of agency is is um you know defined out of who we are as Singaporeans
1: i think also what that does is also like you really get people you, you you really like silo off different groups and you 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 prevent i guess uh what could be like very meaningful collaboration i think in terms of like engaging with different communities in different ways like i don't necessarily think you know like if we yeah if we accept this premise of of of, of there being activists and uh volunteers right and and if people people prop that up and and maintain these dichotomies, then you will never be able to collaborate. You will never be able to maybe come together and and, and come up with more like innovative ideas for how to combat this thing that I think everyone is like, you know, working on. It's just that people are doing it in different ways. And so I guess seeing volunteering as something that exists independent of all these things really, um, yeah, doesn't allow for us to like collaborate and doesn't allow for everyone to see that we're actually like working towards the same thing.
2: I think this conversation reminds me a lot about uh, what this MOE delegate uh, said during the child rights uh, review recently. So, um, Sayoni, uh, we submitted a report on LGBT children to the child rights uh, convention, uh, and the committee during the review actually asked asked the state, uh, so if there was a student in Singapore who was inspired by Greta, and she were to skip school and protest outside her school, how would she be punished? Uh, And the MOE delegate's response was, oh, um, I don't think students in Singapore's first response would be to stage a protest, Uh, and that um, there are appropriate channels and (laughs) outlets in schools for them to express their views and champion their causes, such as the Values and Actions Programme. So, uh, but it just made me think, like, like if Greta existed in school in, in Singapore, she like, if she was from Singapore, and she wanted to, you know, challenge the institutional structures that are causing, like, the climate crisis right now, I don't think the Values in Action program would give her enough space to do that. <laughs> what, what is this program even? It's like CIP. Like, oh, it's okay. So, like, community work. In yeah, public. it's like community work, and you can engage in certain causes, you know, like, like picking up trash or the beach and all that sort of stuff like that, that, that sort of like volunteer work so um in some sense uh i i think if she actually was in singapore and she had to go through the bureaucracy of talking to her teacher and then being shut down and then after that you know maybe it, not even knowing what sort of like processes she could go through within the school structure to read to champion her causes i think she would probably feel very disillusioned and disheartened by then or if she did stage a single person protest, uh, be arrested. <laughs> she'll be arrested. <laughs> but also, it made me think on the flip side, also, I, I do think to some sense, like what the MOE delegate said is kind of true. Like, I don't think um, when, and um, most of us, when we feel like, feels, feel something about a cause and we want to champion it, our first instinct is definitely not to stage a protest.
1: I think it was, sorry, it was interesting. Also, that the person who asked the question automatically assumed that they would get that they will get punished. They're <laughs> like, "Oh yeah, how will they be punished?" You know, which is also like, so like that is that is our like basic assumption, right? That these things already like you've placed a value judgment on, on like acting out in a certain way.
2: I think it also links back to like how much how much how obvious the fear around dissent mm-hmm. is in our society, and that a- as long as you speak up against uh or you reveal certain structural issues and you reveal the wounds of society that that you will feel you will face major repercussions and that fear is something that causes a lot of us to self-censor
0: yeah i think it's really interesting because that fear is in my observation is so pervasive even among people who are not politically aware right so like they might not even be able to tell you what the the repercussions are but the fear exists already and and it's it really kind of limits that sort of imagination of what is possible. So I remember speaking to a group of university students um, last year before the Select Committee on Deliberate Online Falsehood. I was trying to convince them that they should be participating in the consultation process. And, and these students, their first response was, why do you even ask me what my opinion is? Because the government will do what it wants and my opinion mm-hmm. is irrelevant. So when I have so many like, school project assignments cca you know some of them have part-time jobs or whatever they're like well, i have so many other things to do why would i spend mental energy on thinking about this thing knowing that my opinion is irrelevant anyway so they they weren't very interested and then after a while they're like well but you can trust the government because the government never ever abuses its power so you know they we trust them to do what is right and then at the same time then the conversation went on and i think i said something that to me, it wasn't very provocative, but to them, it was quite provocative. And one student immediately said, no, no, you cannot say these things. They will come and take you away. And then I'm like, but you literally just told me like five minutes ago that the government never abuses its power. So you, you, you feel like you can trust the government and they're not going to come down on you. But at the same time, you are also afraid of something. And like... So it's become this thing that's so pervasive that it's not even articulated, but it's there. And it's just... It's it's limiting to the point where even a genuine consultation, where the government is asking you for feedback, um, they they weren't also they were also not interested in in participating in this.
2: I th- I think perhaps also it has yes, to do with the fact that like we live in quite a punitive society, rather than like a society that values um you know values uh healthy disagreements or healthy conversations that and also. And also an authoritarian society that, that that places overemphasis on consensus, where we silence a lot of conversations because when we see something that is, uh, there's tension. When we see tension, we feel like we need to clamp it down, and we need to find someone who is at fault during that situation.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think I recognize that, but I mean, at the same time, schools also talk a lot about leadership, right? And like a lot of leadership training camps and like. Um, taking action and having values, and a lot of talk about holistic things, and like the youth of Singapore must step up more to be, you know, active in the future of our country and all that. And so, how do- how does that work? How does that actually even work out?
1: Um, but I feel like it is right. It's like leaders to like end up leading like yeah, some sort of like volunteer or something, right? Like I mean, it is leadership in very specific ways. Um, and not exactly yeah you know it, it still funnels you into like very very specific um, ways of thinking of like change making um, of not necessarily seeing I guess broader implications of, of all these like, kind of like injustice
3: yeah it's, it's all, all the more like you know all the more these like examples of leadership of like you know being a volunteering group or, or, or doing something which is very safe or friendly to the status quo, all the more like these get valorized.
0: And so going on from this, you know, then then what is the way forward? Um, you know, what are young Singaporeans doing when, when they engage in youth activism? How is youth activism different from what we've seen before? Because I mean, in the democracy classroom, one of the questions we did ask in the group discussion was, is there a value in, in distinguishing youth activism and activism? Because when people broke into groups after a while, I realized what they were actually talking about was just activism in general and not specifically youth activism. And so one of the questions when we had our group discussion was, is there even a value in distinguishing youth activism as if it's a carve-out from the rest of civil society activism? Mm,
2: personally, for me, I, I do think there's a lot of value. Uh in terms of LGBT, in terms of the LGBT movement, because uh as an LGBT youth, you face uh disproportionate amount of uh, like issues because you know you're young, you're financially dependent on your parents, you're struggling with issues of coming out, you might face bullying in your school. And these are sort of issues that you sort of also these are sort of issues that can only be addressed by calling it, you know, LGBT youth activism. And also you kind of also have want to find other youths who are just like you who are, you know, build a community with those youths And also uh, and build solidarity. And I think one thing that I've seen um, a lot of like uh, LGBTQ youths nowadays that are doing is that um, on Instagram, there's like different schools will have their own like queer uh, Instagram page where they will like share polls and like sort of like create a whole community through that. Uh, and then the admins of those pages will be passed down through like from the seniors to the juniors. And I think that's a really good way to create safe spaces um, both like on campus and off campus where you can find people who are like you and who will support you and I think also to my second point is that the I think the value in calling it youth activism as well is because um, there's very a lot of youth activism heavily relies on social media and that uh, outreach social media has is very different and um, a lot of not only just outreach about educating but also about learning and learning from uh, uh, language being used worldwide in terms of like what you know stuff like what non-binary means and like how the language of like queer discourse is being evolved like from throughout the world yeah
1: yeah I mean I think I think there are there are some quite important I think one more one more broadly the is that like I think there is quite a bit of like literature out there on like how like schools should encourage youth activism because this is a time where these individuals are really just like figuring things out to some extent maybe a bit more mobile than uh, people who like yeah you know have fixed jobs or have like you know uh, people to to really seriously consider taking care of um, and it also allows these uh, you know young people to also start to think about like their own values to crystallize what what is important to them, what is important in this world, um, which also helps I think propel them to like you know make um, to make bigger changes maybe as 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 they as they start growing up. Um, and the second reason I think, which is, which is tied to SG Climate Rally, which is very important, and and I think is right now out there in the current discourse with the climate crisis, is that like yeah you know the younger generations will um, are feeling the changes. Um, incredibly like probably because like you know they're going to be here for much longer and and as uh we we face like more exponential um, um increases in, in in just kind of like yeah the destruction of of of, 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 of our climate and, and and of our earth these are the people who will be who will be affected the most so there is there is value in in then positioning the youth as being the, the 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 front runners of trying to make change because these are the people who will be affected the most. But obviously at the same time I think it is again, you know, it's it's not it's also still underscoring that these aren't the only individuals who need to do work. You know, this is a collective effort.
3: I think both of what what both of you are pointing to is also to some extent recognizing that youth is not an age group right it's not what the national youth council defines to be 35 and under or 16 to 35 35 yeah Yeah. i think recognizing that youth is um or the idea of youth as having a degree of social construction is very important and in in seeing how youths are placed within sort of wider society so i guess on the uh, one hand Branding a group as youths allow us to point out to the intergenerational aspects of justice or equity issues which which arise. Um, so I think that's something you see quite commonly in, in the US and, and UK. Conversations about how you know how older people voting in a certain way you know fail to reflect what the demands of the younger generation are. Especially and that comes across a lot in climate issues, right? Um, particularly. Um, but also at the same time, like just thinking about what youth like being a youth means in Singapore, right? In some ways it's a double-aged sword. Um I guess I am worried that uh you know there's a flip side to that that youths are also branded as these people are still young and naive and innocent and they don't necessarily know what they're doing. Um and that, that's very strange because on the one hand, that gives youth more agency to to push the boundaries and push the lines. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, does that mean that they are sometimes treated less seriously because of the fact that they are youth? So I think so. I guess like I think I have this very ambivalent relationship with being called a youth or a youth activist or any term like that. Like like, are you doing it in a way which doesn't treat me seriously, or doesn't treat what my issues or my causes or my beliefs seriously, or or you know, does it mean uh, or or you or was there another inflection to that?
2: Yeah, I think this was something that came up quite a bit during the democracy classroom as well about how um, there's this uh, I think maybe also culturally there's this hierarchy of age where you have to like, respect your elders. That sort of emphasis on that, and then when the young person speaks up, you're told that you know uh, you don't know much. You're, you're just a social justice warrior. Uh, go back uh to studying and you should. Prioritize, you know, your studies first because that should be your only concern as a youth. And I think that dismisses a lot of um, issues that youth face, and also um, it kind of like goes against uh, about the the goes against the emphasis on wanting to build young leaders because you're telling them to you know um, to to build their agency, to build their capacity, but at the same time you tell them that they don't know enough and that. Um, that they should just go back
3: to study. Yeah. And quite importantly, I think this also goes back, especially in Singapore, to what the education system is, right? Or what the purpose of education is. And like as long as we keep seeing education as uh, getting your 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 certificate, your degree, finding a stable job in society and not education as being an opportunity to explore the world, explore how you relate to society and how you function um and and you know to kind of push the boundaries then i think i guess we always be stuck with this sort of like ageism and you know in a a different way yeah
0: yeah i think that that struck me with the Yale and us thing when they cancelled that dissent and resistance program and people were like oh because you know you shouldn't be teaching students these things like you shouldn't be you know teaching them how to be activists and how to protest and and I mean my reaction was that was, I mean, like, have you have you seen the students? They don't need to be taught anything, right? They're already doing it. They're already all these queer youth groups, and you see them at Pink Dot and like like at Pink Dot they are more active and more woke than anybody and and they don't need to be taught. You know, there is already so so much access to resources. Like if you're not teaching them, they're reading it off like some you know, US website about how young people there are taking things into their own hands and like stage and we're reading about Greta Thunberg doing climate strikes and stuff. People, young Singaporeans don't need to be taught. We have like so much access to resources. And I think that that then creates this thing of, well, if they don't need to be taught, then what can we do in Singapore? How, how do we support youth activism? And how do we support young people who want to do things? what would be helpful for you?
2: In terms of the youth groups that I have been involved with and uh, some of the ones that I'm still involved with, to be honest, I think one of the biggest concerns is like financial support. That, that there is this um, tendency to, to be averse to, to supporting youth groups because, you know, maybe you just don't take them seriously enough. Also, the fact that like these LGBTQ youth support groups, uh, youth groups can't be registered and then the... it impacts a lot on their fundraising methods so I think financial support is obviously the one way you could support these groups but also on the flip side I think um, if one is unable to financially support groups I think just volunteering and um, just you know messaging a group and just asking them like how can I help I think uh, a lot of groups in Singapore we are we Really, do not have that much manpower and we will always value uh people supporting us you know through our actions or even sometimes just reposting sometimes what a group posts on on social media and just spreading the word to your friends whether they are like-minded or not
1: i think it is really just to like in going back to the broader conversation of opening up honest conversations with different people with different views, I really do think it is genuinely like listening to the youth and not necessarily seeing what they are saying as just like, you know, youthful idolism or like, oh, this is not what happens in the real world. You know, I mean, I don't necessarily think that's something that we like, don't understand. I think what we're trying to do is challenge this idea of like, is this the real world that you, you, you like so desire that like, you know, you cannot have conversations, you cannot challenge, you know, these structural issues. That's not what that's not the real world that we want what we want to do is to actively try and like combat that and i think actually taking that and listening to that and 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 supporting the youth right because admittedly there are still spaces that we don't necessarily have access to right um you know um, politics and, and big companies i mean that is still places that like i guess the older people still have capital in and so to like support and like make changes in those spaces um is i think very helpful
3: for sure. Choosing to amplify the voice of use rather than dismiss them. I think that's quite key. Okay. Yeah. And
0: I, I think, you know, on on that that's a good note to close on. But before we close, I think is that how, how can people find out more about your work and the causes that you do? Like is there something a website or somewhere? Or if they want to donate to give financial support, how do they find you?
1: Um yeah, I mean you can you can uh, go th- to facebook or instagram it's just SG Climate rally uh, we have a website coming up soon i don't know if i can see that but anyway yeah so, there's a website coming up soon so just watch watch for that yeah.
2: uh you can find us on uh, facebook and instagram uh you can just search sireny and i'm sure it'll pop up and um in terms of financial support um our co-founder uh uh, it, it's our co-founders birthday month this month and she is uh, running a, running a fundraising drive for her birthday. Um, all the de- all the information is up on our uh, Facebook page so uh, yeah, you can uh, financially support us if you are able to.
3: Yeah you can find us on Facebook. Research uh, team can be found on Facebook and you can if you're interested you can also read our book that we published uh, earlier this year called Told us to Move by Ethos Books. It's published with Ethos Books.
0: And where can people get that? Uh, Everywhere.
3: Everywhere. In- Kilo. Every uh, you can buy it directly on the Ethos website if you want to support the publisher. Too.
0: And and if people want to check out New Narrative, we are at newnarrative.com. That's N-E-W-N-A-R-A-T-I-F dot com. And we are a member funded platform. So if you wanna join us, it's US fifty-two dollars a year or US five dollars a month, and you can find that at newnarrative.com slash join. And so thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast, and we hope to bring you one connected to another democracy classroom pretty soon. So watch out for that. All right, thank you everyone.